First John and chapter 3. As we come again to a series of messages from First John dealing with the subject of assurance of salvation. I'm sure I don't need to say it. I've said it a number of times that this subject is crucial. It is vital for our spiritual well-being. First of all, simply because when we get to the judgment day, it will be too late to change anything. And war betide the individual who meets with God thinking I'm a Christian only to be told, sorry, get away from me. I never knew you, you worker of sin. That's tragic because there is no opportunity to reverse that reality. But we've also been saying that one of the reasons why this is important is simply because it is tied up with our witness here below. In other words, you can only be enthusiastic about sharing the good news of salvation in Christ if you know that you yourself have been saved from sin. If you don't know, if you're in doubt, if you think this is something you only discover after you die, you will not be enthusiastic to share that message. So for those two reasons, I have said again and again that it is vital for us to settle this issue and to settle it biblically. We are in chapter 3, and I will read verse 11 to verse 18. This morning, we are only considering verse 15 from this section. But let me read from verse 11 to verse 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, 
Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Well, let's read that verse that we are looking at together this morning. 1 John 3 and verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The last time, which was a fortnight ago, when we looked at this passage of scripture, we saw how John brought in the element of uh, the, the new birth, being individuals that have passed from death to life, and saying that one way in which we know that we have undergone that transition is through our loving those who are also individuals that have gone through the same transition. He says there in verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know? Because we love the brothers. And then the opposite is equally true. Whoever does not love abides in death. In other words, he hasn't undergone that transition. We said that this must be obvious because at the point of our conversion, the spirit of the living God immerses us into the body of Christ. And since we are not the only ones who are immersed into the body of Christ, others who have repented and believed are also in the same position. We tend to have a sense of belonging to one another. And that sense of belonging to one another gives us empathy or sympathy towards one another. And invariably, therefore, love flows from us to them and love flows from them to us. This is inevitable if we have truly become Christians. Well, today we are looking at the exact opposite. And the opposite is, if you have hatred in your heart for believers, you are not a believer yourself. Let me say that again. If you have a hatred in your heart for believers, then you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ yourself. This is a very practical subject. It's practical because invariably when you are in a church like this, you will step on each other's toes. You will do wrong things to one another. And clearly, therefore, you are likely to end up being hurt. And the question that invariably must be asked is when you are hurt like that, what happens? Do you decide, I'll have nothing to do with this person, I'll have nothing to do with these individuals, I'm going to, to live my own life and perhaps begin to, to nurse a grudge against them? Or do you say, look, these are my people, I belong 
And consequently, we better resolve these issues. We better talk over them. We better reason through them together so that our relationship can be restored. Which of these two is it? And that's the reason why this is an equally important test. Because it brings us to face this reality that I have stepped on other people's toes, they've stepped on my toes. How are we relating in the midst of these difficulties? The way in which life is, is usually uh, when you are in Kalama's shoes and you start attending a church, everybody looks like an angel. They are perfect. Uh, even angels seem to have faults compared to them. But you wait until you've been there long enough before you discover that, yeah, they are like me. We all have our rough edges and we tend to affect others. And there, in that situation, that's the best place to discover whether you are truly a Christian or not. On the other hand, if you're an individual who simply keeps hoping from church to church, church to church, this weekend you are here, the next weekend you are there, the other weekend you are over there, then obviously you will not have this test because you don't stay long enough to really deal with the people that are there. It's like uh, living in a home in contrast to being in a hotel. I always smile to myself because in hotels, everybody's pleasant. Welcome, sir. We can take care of your bag, sir. Uh, here's your room, sir. And anything else, sir. And so on and you say, wow. I wish I could stay here forever. But you can be sure that those individuals, where they have just come from, from their homes, before putting on their best to come to, to work, they, they've caused hell in other people's lives. They've called one another demons. But they come to work, hello, sir, take a seat, sir, you know, with all these nice smiles. Well, that's the way it is. Before you, you really get integrated into the life of the church, those smiles you see outside there in the car park and sitting next to one another, everybody is brilliant. Until you become part of the family, then you discover, yes, there are fallen creatures here. So what is John saying? How does this help us to process whether we are truly Christians or not? Well, something that he is not saying, but which we can take for granted is this. That hatred in the heart is the factory that finally produces sinful destruction. It is a matter of time. Hatred that is harbored in the heart that's eating away in the heart. It is a matter of time before it's going to cause damage 
to people who are around. As I said, that's not quite what John is saying here when he says everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That's not quite what he's saying, but you can be sure that that is in the background because that is true. The Bible warns again and again that if you hate people, it is a matter of time you are going to injure them. I want us to quickly look at two examples in the Old Testament and then in the New, we will look at two passages as well. Two in the Old Testament. The first takes us right back to Genesis. Genesis and chapter 27. I'll give you the background very quickly. And it's to do with Esau and his brother Jacob. Esau was the elder of the two brothers. However, on one occasion, due to the fact that he was terribly hungry, he came to his brother asking him for some soup. And uh, his brother was reluctant to give it to him for nothing. And so he thought, okay, what do I have that I can dispense with and not feel it at all? And he thought, good, my birthright. In other words, my right to receive a double portion of my inheritance. And that's what he said to his brother, fine, you can have my, my birthright. And Jacob, being the, the swindler that he was, said good. And consequently, he gave him his soup. Well, as it turned out in the end, although they never told the father, in the end, Jacob actually got the birthright. What was Esau's response? Verse 41. Verse 41. Now, that is Genesis 27, by the way. Now, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And listen to this. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Can you believe it? There he is, deciding in his own heart that after the funeral is over, I'm killing him because of what he has done. And that's his own brother that he's speaking like this about. Well, we know the story. As soon as uh, the funeral was over, uh, Jacob ran for his life. He disappeared for a number of years. We find the same in 2 Samuel and chapter 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13. Again, I'll give you the background there. This time is to do with Absalom. Absalom had a beautiful sister by the name of Tamar. One of his half-brothers by the name of Amnon fell in love with his half-sister. And he connived, well, he asked his friends, and one friend said to him, very simple, 
pretend you are sick, ask her to bring food into your bedroom, just tell everybody to get out and ask her to feed you, and while the two of you are alone, you can fulfill your heart's desire. And that's what the guy did, and in the process, he raped his half-sister. Absalom, who was her full brother, heard about it. And this was his response. Chapter 13, verse 22. Chapter 13, verse 22, down to verse 28. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon. Okay? So neither good nor bad. In other words, he's quiet. Saying nothing. But in his heart, it's brewing. Why? Because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Balhazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. He's now putting into place his plan. His devilish plan. We read in verse 24, And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I said to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. Where did all this come from? It was because ever since he was hurt by what Amnon did, he had been nursing a grudge, nursing a grudge, nursing a grudge until he decided this is the perfect timing and he killed his brother. Notice again, it's his brother that he murdered. Let's go to the New Testament quickly and look at Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Let me give the background there. This is to do with a lady called Herodias. Herodias is not a name you should give to your daughter. She was married to one of the Herods by the name, first name of Philip. And then the current Herod that she is married to here ended up pinching her away from her husband. And this man that she was now with 
was obviously not supposed to be with her. She was his brother's wife. Well, as it turned out, um, John the Baptist began to preach to Herod. And as he was preaching to him, he kept saying to him, it is not right for you to have your brother's wife. King Herod himself realized this guy is saying the truth. I need to do something about it. Herodias, the lady herself, kept thinking, ah, this guy, he can end up destroying your marriage and consequently, where will you go? You've destroyed that side. If even this is destroyed, then obviously you will lose out on all the wealth that is around you. Well, let's read from um, verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the, old, one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So now we are being told the story. How was John beheaded? For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And here it is, verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept himself. Verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Now you know when men are drunk, eh? How do you pay half a kingdom, someone's sort of gyrating in front of you for 30 minutes? But anyway, that's what he did. So verse 24 tells us, And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And listen to the answer. And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Terrible. How could she have even thought about a thing like that? I mean, this is where you say, Give me half your kingdom. You said it yourself. But the reason why she was doing so is because all along she was constantly thinking, how can I get rid of this chap? I hate his guts. So finally, when the daughter comes, he say, she says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Believe it or not, that's how John the Baptist died. That's it. 
God's own servant was murdered. Finally, James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Here it's not about other people. It's about all of us. All of us seated in here. James chapter 4. What is it that causes us to fight? What is it that makes us punch fellow human beings in the face? What is it that makes us wish them dead? This is the way James puts it. James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? In other words, something is happening in you that is going to bubble over and consequently result in other people being injured? Verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You fight and quarrel. Now, I mean, we all do get hurt when people do us wrong. And this passage that we are looking at is not saying you should never get hurt when people do you wrong. No. Rather, what it is saying is that when you get hurt, instead of leaving that hurt to, to fester, fester, turn into a boil that one day erupts, instead of doing that, you should call the person who has hurt you, you should say, now look, what you have done has hurt me. This is the way I feel about this matter. Let's talk it over. If a person obviously doesn't want to listen to you and in the process they call you all kinds of names and insult you, that's a different matter. But that's not what you eliminate first and then just continue having this thing boiling inside you. You don't do that. In the book of Leviticus, which we'll go back to in a moment, but Leviticus and chapter 19, this is what it says in verse 17. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But this is what you will do instead. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Okay? So you should not hate your brother in your heart. Your brother has done something against you. Don't continue going around nursing a grudge in your heart. Because if you're nursing a grudge in your heart, one day you will sin against God as a result of that. So what should you do instead? He says there, you should reason frankly with your neighbor. Say to him, say to her, this which you have done has hurt me. And I felt you owe me an apology. 
so that I deal with this thing. Because if you don't, the Bible is saying, you will end up sinning one day. You end up sinning one day. Now, back to First John. It is in order to help us see how serious hatred is, that the Bible deliberately doesn't simply speak about hatred as something which will produce murder, produce destruction, but rather hatred is murder itself. It is murder in the heart. When you are going around with a grudge in your heart, you are actually murdering the person that you have a grudge against. Back to 1 John 3 and verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. He is a murderer already. That's the point. He's a murderer already. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Often we don't realize that. We often think because it's inside, I'm still innocent. After all, I haven't yet put a knife in between his ribs. So, I'm innocent. But we forget that with God, you either love somebody or you hate them. There's no middle ground. Let's go to chapter 2. Uh, and just two verses there, verse 9 and verse 10. 1 John 2, verse 9 and verse 10. Notice that it's one or the other. It says there, chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. And here's the other option. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him, there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. It's one of two things. You either love the brethren or you hate the brethren. You either love a brother or you hate the brother. There's no middle ground. And usually we try to hide in the middle ground. But me, I, I, I don't hate anybody. Okay, I can't really be described as loving people, but neither do I hate. Well, as far as God is concerned, there, there is no no man's land over this matter. You either love or you hate. And Jesus taught that if you harbor hatred in your heart, God will punish you. Let's go to Matthew very quickly. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. And it's important that we capture this. Matthew 5, verse 21 and verse 22. He's teaching on anger here. This is what he says. 
You have heard Matthew 5 and verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And this is physical murder. Taking a knife and piercing somebody's flesh with it. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. In other words, anyone who murders this way will go before the uh, magistrate's court or the high court or the supreme court and they'll be dealt with. This is the teaching that you've been given all along. Now, here is Jesus. But I said to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And now, Jesus is moving from human judgment to God's judgment. And he's saying, because God sees what is in the heart. And he is seeing you going around with this grudge eating away at you. And God is seeing you in your heart wishing harm on other people. And God is recording that. Eh? You hear that that person you, you have a grudge against, you hear that he's been involved in a car accident. And you are hoping, I, I hope, Nafwa. <laughs> then you hear, no, no, he's actually in, in, in ICU. Intensive care unit. And every day you are, you are asking, Nafwa? Okay, you may not be asking it outwardly, but in your heart. And God is, is, is recording all those thoughts. That you, you're wishing the person dies. Or perhaps the individual has had a, a case at work and he may be innocent. And he's on suspension. There are hearings that are coming up. And in your heart you are really saying, I, I hope he loses his job. I really hope so. You're not wanting to, to say, okay, I hope the truth comes out. I hope if he's innocent, he is finally vindicated. I hope, no, no, no. In your heart, you just really, I, I, I hope the guy, he suffers. And you know, God is recording all that. That's what he's doing. And don't tell me with, with such a, a tainted record in the eyes of God, wishing individuals made in the image of God, wishing them evil, wishing them misfortune, wishing them death. You honestly think that God is overlooking it? As far as God is concerned, you are a murderer. That's what you are, a murderer, because he reads the heart. That's what Jesus talked concerning last, didn't he? Verse 27. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28. But I said to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's saying because God looks at the heart. 
He sees what's happening inside you as you're already beginning to feast on that woman with your own eyes. Even before you carry out the plans to get her into an actual physical bed, God is already seeing the sin. And he is saying a sin has already been committed. That's what John is telling us here. It is that God sees the heart. He sees the heart. And what makes it worse in our text is that you are hating your brother. In other words, it, it's, it's somebody who also professes faith, somebody who is with you in the church, as it were, and you are wishing them ill. You're wishing they will backslide. You're wishing they will, they will harm their testimony. You're wishing something bad is going to happen to them. Those are the prayers that are arising before God, and God is saying, eh, 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 eh. What kind of prayers are these? He's supposed to be praying for blessings on the brethren. But instead, he is wishing them harm. And it's important, friends, that we, we examine our professional faith through this. What is your attitude? What is your relationship with these people? that you meet with week after week. What is it? What, what does God hear from you in your heart about them? We must be persuaded that about the truth that no one who lives like this knows God. No one who lives like this has experienced God's salvation. That's what John says here. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's a very strong term. And notice the way he puts it here. He's saying, you know. Hmm? You know. In other words, this is not something that you should be surprised about. This is, this is common sense. Surely, it should not surprise you that a person who's going around, as it were, with a, 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 an axe on his shoulders, hurting people, at least on the inside, at the first opportunity, such a person cannot have eternal life. The reason is quite simple. It's because a murderous spirit and the Holy Spirit cannot dwell in the same heart. It's not possible. It's not possible. A murderous spirit and the spirit of a God who's full of love cannot be together. When he says he has no eternal life abiding in him, he's basically saying he has no life of God abiding in him. Because God is love. How can love and hatred 
be in the same soul? How can light and darkness be in the same room? It's not possible. It's utterly impossible. Or, putting it another way, eternal life is the life that flows in the spiritual family. It's the life that binds us together. It's the life your brother and your sister have experienced. It is the life that you claim to also have. Now, you cannot have that life if you are going around nursing a grudge. Each time you come to church, you are hoping you won't end up on the same pew with that chap too. And if the ushers lead you to that pew, the moment you just look, you quickly start struggling to get to the next pew, although it's completely full, you still want to squeeze in. You can't sit with such a person. You get out of church, if the person has gone this way and they're in the crowd there, you start going all the way around to finally go and get to your car just to avoid such a person. No. God is saying there's a problem. And the problem is inside. It's not what happened once upon a time between yourselves. It's inside. It needs to be dealt with. Let me ask, because if you answer to this description, if these examples I'm giving are true about you, what the Bible is saying is, is that you are still dead in your sins. Yes, you may be a member of Kabwata Baptist Church, you may be an individual that I baptized here, but if that is true of you, you are still dead in your sins, forget about heaven. If you die in that state. And as I said, it's a very practical subject. Very. Because it won't be long. It happens in families, we step on one another's toes. It happens in marriages, we step on one another's toes. It happens in workplaces. Wherever you are, you just have to dwell long enough with individuals and you are going to hurt one another. The question is, Are you concerned to reconcile with them? Are you? Are you concerned about that? Do you go out of your way to say, I need to talk to you? There was that issue and that issue. It's hurtful. Let's deal with it. Or are you an individual who says in your heart, go to hell? Go to hell. Can do very well without you. Go to hell. Where is the knife cutting here? Has it cut in such a way that you are still on the inside? You're still an individual that can say, I love the brethren. 
they mean a lot to me. I can pray through the entire membership list of Kabwata Baptist Church, and there's not a single individual that I wish harm upon, that I want nothing to do with. Each name I come across, I love them. I wish them well. I can pray from the depth of my heart, Lord, bless him. Lord, bless her. Lord, bless them. Or has the knife cut on the opposite end? And you are saying to yourself, yeah, most of them, I love them. But that one, I wish he was never born, let alone being born again. I wish she was never born. The Bible is saying the problem is not with him or her, it's with you. It's with your heart. You need to say to God, search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me, test me through these same circumstances and know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be any wicked ways in me. Cleanse me from every sin. Do that to me that I may be a person who's truly, genuinely going to heaven. And I want to assure you, Jesus is a savior. You know, people who always think that maybe what I'm describing is the super, hyper, spiritual believer. You, you, you can continue beset and and riddled all over with with grudges here and there and you still find yourself in heaven. People who think like that, they just don't know. Jesus truly saves. You know, in in aeroplanes, uh, you can go to the same destination with people who are traveling business class and economy. Doesn't matter. Those who are in business class pay five times more. Okay, they get a little more food. We accept. (laughs) The chairs are bigger and wider. But believe you me, we touch the runway at the same time. Okay, they get out a little faster than the rest of us. (laughs) It's possible to begin to think like that concerning salvation. That you see, what's being described here are are the business class Christians. Okay. But even me, ordinary Christian, with beset, with hatred in my heart and grudges, nursing them, and I don't like that one, don't like that one. Oh, yeah. I'll still go to heaven. No. A thousand times no. Because it betrays the condition of your heart. 
It says your heart is not right. And Jesus fixes hearts. That's what he does. So instead of you trying to argue out a, a crack to find yourself in heaven somehow, take your heart to Jesus and say to him, Jesus, save me, change me, cleanse me, renew me. I've seen that I'm full of hatred and no murderer has eternal life. Save me, change me today so that I may overflow with heart even towards those who hurt me. That I might seek to win them over because they are my brothers, they are my sisters and we are marching together to heaven. Lord, change me. That's my appeal. Don't ever think that you can be riddled with sin and still find yourself in heaven. Jesus really saves. May you come to him as a broken sinner asking him to really, really save you. Amen.